welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, it's really difficult sometimes to, to love dirty and bad people, isn't it? Here's that disheveled person that comes up to you, panhandling you, and they're asking for some lunch money. And so you give it to them grudgingly, and then you watch them as they go around to the corner store and they buy some long necks with it. It's really difficult to love dirty and bad people, isn't it? It's hard for us human beings. But you know something? God loves bad people. And he loves undeserving people. And you know why? It is because of the quality, his unique quality of love, that he is able to love everyone. Because our human love is dependent on the beauty or the goodness of its object, but God's love is sovereign and it's independent, and that's why he is free to love evil people. He loved them in Christ, and he still has his arms flung around the world. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus is still the good shepherd. Even though he's our pastor in, in heaven, he's still seeking the lost sheep. He's the good shepherd seeking you and me, corporately involved with humanity so that our suffering has become his suffering. The human race is one in Jesus Christ so that he's now part of our human family and he cannot forget or forsake his own. If you go to the song number 92 in the hymn book, it illustrates this point that we're trying to make and it's the final verse, hymn number 92, this is my father's world. And the last verse says this, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget, it's easy for us to forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, that's what causes us to forget, isn't it? So many bad things, so much suffering. If there's so much suffering and God is so good, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't God do something that the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet? This is my Father's world, we sing. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. Our problem lies in distinguishing between what we call love and the nature of the love that the Bible reveals. When the Bible says that God is love, the word in Greek is agape. It's a real foreign concept that is only known and imported from heaven. It's something that's wholly absent 
from native earth consciousness anywhere. There's no ancient religion outside the Old Testament uh, that had resources even to hint of the existence of agape love. However scientific our minds may be today, however logical and rational in its attempts to doubt the personality of God, the reality of agape confronts us squarely. We can deny it, like a blind man may deny sunlight, but if we are honest, it testifies to us of a loving and personal God who is both the Father and the Savior of the world. This love blocks agnosticism. It blocks atheism in its tracks until such time as conscience either acknowledges it or succumbs to its cynical unbelief. Beyond the rejection, even God's angels can do no more. There's no historian, there's no evolutionist or atheist that can trace the origin of agape to any other source than that of the cross that was erected on a little hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. If those fishermen apostles had minds that were fertile enough to invent that idea of agape, they would deserve the all-time Pulitzer Prize. But the apostles did not invent the idea of agape. God did in giving his son to die on the cross outside Jerusalem. You may have often asked yourself the question, how in the world can an infinite God have feelings like we have? How can he have feelings like we have? Here you have, we read about this in the news, and we hear it on the news constantly, every night at the 6 o'clock news, if you like that kind of thing anymore. I'm tired of it. I can't handle it anymore. I have to let God bear the burden of it. I would like to have better news. I would like to have the good news, not the bad news, wouldn't you? But these airliners, you know, with hundreds of innocent people that are blown out of the sky, we hear about it on the nightly news, or some demented murderer spraying machine gun bullets on a schoolyard of innocent children, an earthquake killing thousands of sleeping people, a tsunami sweeping over a low-lying area in the Pacific and taking lives away. How can an almighty God in heaven Look on such things and allow them if he loves and if he has feelings. Millions of people want to believe in him, but they wonder, maybe God is like that impassable Buddha-like deity. Maybe God is some kind of an absentee landlord. He just ignores his tenants who are on planet Earth. If the Bible is right when it says that God is a divine person, then it's easy to assume that he must be ensconced in some kind of perfect security. There he is with immortality. He's enjoying the constant pleasures of millions of angels that are just serving him hand and foot. And from our point of view, which we naturally revert to in the midst of suffering, our default position is that God must be like those residents down there in Beverly Hills Mansion who don't have a worry in the world and they, could, they don't even think about the homeless beggars in Calcutta. God must be like that. You know, deism is the widely popular 
assumption. God exists all right, but he is cold. He is cold and distant, and he leaves us to our inept selves to wreak havoc on one another. And because such an idea breeds selfishness, that idea about God breeds our selfishness, it is very bad news about God. Very bad news. If, number one, God is a devotee to only himself as being number one, why, why shouldn't we be the same? Why shouldn't we be the same? The assumption is that God is self, as selfish, as unconcerned as we are, is the real reason why the me first has become such a popular philosophy. All of the world's selfishness derives either from a false concept of God or a blatant rejection of the true understanding of God as revealed in the Bible. The Bible picture of God's true character reveals him as a person. It reveals him with a human side. With a human side. He does care. He does feel the hurt. He is concerned. Can you believe it that God is sensitive? That God has feelings, sympathetic feelings, which means that he is in deep pain, folks. God is in deep pain. Amen. He feels it. In fact, he cannot rest so long as there's one unhappy person who is left on this earth. His heartache is incessant, for he is infinitely close to humanity. For example, his involvement in the uh, minute nuances of our heart longings is down to earth. Here you have it in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29. It says, you can get a real bargain if you want to buy some sparrows, some birds, because for only a penny you can buy two sparrows. And yet not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father's consent. He is so corporately involved in our experiences that he has nerve endings that sense our pain as fully as we feel it, yes, even more so, for at no time is our consciousness alert. At no time is our consciousness alert, neither is yours, to all of the intensity of pain that exists in the world. But God's nerve endings are sensitive to every last pain that exists on this earth. That teenager who gets hooked on drugs or immorality cannot foresee the agony that is coming down the road for her or him. But God sees that agony that comes down the road as a result of choices beforehand. He sees it all coming because he, he sees it ahead of time. And if only the teenager could see it heading too because of wrong choices. Speaking of God's suffering and his followers on this earth, look at Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9. And Brother James said when he read this text that it was a powerful text in the Bible. 
Isaiah 63, verse 9 says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. You know, one of Christ's names is Emmanuel, isn't it? Which translated means God with us. That's the human side of God, isn't it? In other words, there can be no hurt that a human knows that he does not also feel. Isaiah further says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, he explains this divine consciousness of our hurt and our infirmities. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, it says, and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. So our otherwise intolerable existence can be transformed by simply believing that often unbelievable glimpse of God. Yes, God is a sensitive and loving person. A sensitive, he is not impassable and untouched by our hurts and our suffering. Even in the midst of our troubles, we humans still enjoy a vast amount of peace. And though we may not be conscious conscious of its true source, what Isaiah is saying is this, that none of us could know the credit benefit of even a moment of fleeting happiness unless a corresponding debit had been already borne in our stead by that divine suffering one. Any kind of peace and joy that you experience in your life was purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. Be thankful for it. Be thankful that you live in a society where you, for the most part, don't have to worry about war and invasion and intrusion. That for the most part, you have peace and know that that comes, that it's purchased at a great price for you. Jesus bought it for you on the cross. That's the underlying truth behind every joy, every springtime, every burst of strawberry that you may eat, (laughs) every piece of fruit. He was rejected on earth and expelled, for the people said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And instead of the bitter rejection which he felt, we experience his unconditional acceptance of us which includes the Father also. He unconditionally accepts us. It's amazing, not only that he has forgiven his murderers, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but that he has not in some high dungeon washed his hands of our predicament. We may richly deserve to be without him, but in the fullest sense possible, he assures us, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, verse 20. And Jesus' work was to reveal the facts about his Father's character. Not only are Christ and the Father one, but since Christ has become incorporate in humanity, and we in him, our yearnings and life experiences become his And it just staggers our imagination, for we find it hard to believe this good news can be so good. But it is. 
But our question is, if God is so concerned about us, and if he is so all-powerful, and if he feels our suffering, how can he allow this evil to go on? How? Is he doing all that he can? And the Bible discloses a behind-the-scenes cosmic conflict that helps us here. There is a very good reason for what superficially appears to be unconcern on his part. The truth is, God is fully engaged and concerned with the problem of the cosmic conflict. You may think that God has forgotten about the great controversy, but Jesus and God are working overtime to resolve it and to get rid of it. You see, he's got an enemy that he's fighting, and there is a war that's going on against him. And that explains what appears to be a mysterious impotence on the part of God. We are not surprised at rebellions and wars on the earth, but who would ever expect for there to be a war in heaven? Who would ever ever expect that? That's where, however, the Bible says evil started. And if you look in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 and onwards, I'll read here what it has to say. It says that war broke out in heaven. Michael, which is another name for Christ, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angel fought, but they did not prevail. And no place was found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Well, is it God who threw him down here and created all this problem and mess for us because he didn't have anywhere else to isolate it? And so he sent Satan here. We shall discover how Satan got his entrance here into this earth. First of all, let me share you, with you a story out of World War II where the subjects of the British crown endured years of agony during World War II while a kind of, they had a very kind and very sensitive monarch during World War II. His name was King George VI, and he had a very gracious queen who sat with him on the throne. And the king listened to the daily news of destruction in his country and in the city of London, and uh, his own heart was just torn with sympathy for the agony of his subjects. Gladly would King George have ended the war at any moment if he could, but you see, the war was not of King George's making. Adolf Hitler had thrust the conflict upon him. And the whole security of Europe required that it be fought through to the bitter end. Well, that's just a small glimpse of the problem that God has. Because an enemy has thrust this greater war upon him to deal with. It is a controversy that is not of God's choosing. The cosmic drama of the conflict between good and evil began with, I suppose we could call it Act One, the war in heaven where Satan met defeat there. Then Act Two is of our making, 
because it introduced the whole insurrection into our planet. And here's how it happened. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, signed this world over to the control of God's enemy and made themselves his captives. And it's here that the rebel managed to recoup his loss when he was cast out of heaven in Act 1. But you know something? God didn't wash his hands of planet Earth. God lo- God's love could not abandon this Earth. And it did not abandon it. The very nature of that love required him to rescue us. So you have Act 3. The Father must endure intimate sympathy with the agony of this planet until the great conflict between Christ and Satan can be resolved. So Christ came 2,000 years ago. And why did he come? He came as a as a king, but he wasn't recognized as such, but he clothed his kingliness in shepherd's garments, didn't he? And for the most part, he went unrecognized, but he came to claim his rightful rulership over this earth by clothing himself in humble garments. He came like a beggar in many ways. If he had been accepted we would have long ago realized a world peace, security, happiness that we yearn for. But since he was rejected and crucified and cast out of his world, the planet is still in rebellion against him and no more recognizes his authority than the Nazis recognize the authority of King George or Franklin Roosevelt. And while there are people today who wholeheartedly accept Christ as the rightful ruler of this planet, they are in the minority, and they are fighting an underground war, as it, is, as it were. An underground, we are underground combatants is what it is, because we've signed on in the conflict with Jesus. Now, the Lord is very eager to return to this earth to end this nightmare of selfishness and sin with all of its attendant cruelty. And there is no way, be assured, that God is sitting by idly enjoying himself in some kind of celestial luxury while this war is raging on down here. His love for the universe is intense. The universe itself cannot wait for the cosmic victory day when the cruel enemy shall be forever defeated. But one of the most profound disclosures that we have in Scripture is that one of our 24-hour days is to God like a thousand years. Now listen, to us, our darkest day is always short because it's only 24 hours. For the, fa- you know, the pain that we can feel in 24 hours is quite finite. Finite. Only our own pain can we feel, or at best a partial pain felt for those who are the nearest to us. But those are just a few. But think of this. In deepest sympathy, God must feel the pain of everyone on earth every 24 hours of every day. And that has to be more than one day like a thousand years to him. 
Surely that must make one of our collective days seem like a thousand years to him. He has so much more consciousness that is pressed into a day than we have. Imagine sharing in the agony of millions, yes, even more, billions of people. He can never go to sleep as you can at night. He can never go to sleep thinking about it. He longs ever so much for this planet's pain to come to an end. He wants it more than you do. I'm sure of it. His solution to world problems is infinitely efficient. He doesn't give us band-aids to put on the problem because the solution is more than just on the surface of the skin. He has to get to the root of human problems, the sinful selfishness that is entrenched in our human hearts. This is the big I in every one of us, which means our self-love rather than agape. That is the deeper root problem, and this requires an atonement a reconciliation of alienated hearts to him, you see. Not that selfish people must be eradicated, but selfishness itself must be eradicated from sinners. This must be accomplished by proclaiming and and a demonstration of the good news of what Christ has accomplished on his cross and what he continues to do for us and for the world as our high priest, as our savior from sin. Satan opposes this. His last-ditch stand is his claim. Satan claims that the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus' ongoing ministry as our high priest, all of that is an exercise in futility. Look, Satan sneers, the world is worse now than when the Son of God died to save it. And to answer that charge, the gospel must produce a beautiful change in believing humanity and thus give evidence that the plan of salvation is not in vain. And so we have Act 4. Is there such a gospel? Is there? Is it really good news? Does it have power? If so, how does it work? And the precious message the Lord sends to the world in these last days is not some some kind of condemnation and thunder and lightning denunciation of sin abounding. It is a heartwarming message of much more abounding grace. That is what penetrates to the inner badness of human evil. That is what changes hearts. So God's present problem You know, when you and I pray, please, Lord, why don't you do something to help this sad old world and end the suffering? How many times I've prayed that prayer? Maybe you have too. And you know something? The Lord answers back to us, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? By his rejection, by his crucifixion, Think of it this way. Christ has been voted out of his office as ruler of this earth. He 
Christ cannot do like other um, tyrannists do of pulling off a coup with bloodshed and overthrowing the evil forces on this earth and usurping control where he's not wanted, but he can work in and through those people who commit themselves to him and who respond to the Holy Spirit. That's how he accomplishes it. He is the true light, the Bible says, which lighteth, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Not all is going to welcome and receive the light, but some do, thank God. And he has encircled the world with an atmosphere of grace that is real as the air that you and I breathe. And those who choose to welcome it become his children and his co-workers, and they sign on with the great controversy battle with him. And they cast their vote for him. Does God need you? You, are, you may be certain he needs you. You know, sometimes people come and they say, oh, I'm so discouraged. I'm prone to doubt. I'm going to just give up. Throw in the towel with the battle. And the only thing that the Holy Spirit can prompt me to say is, I'm so sorry to hear that because Jesus needs you. He needs you to cast your vote in this great controversy. And we need you in order to be part of gaining the victory with Christ. Christ is going to have the cooperation of an underground force who are loyal to him in this great controversy, ministering that grace in very practical ways to the world. The only hands that Jesus can use, the only voice which he can speak through is your voice and my voice. Why don't you do something, Jesus says. In answer to our prayer, why don't you do something? The rebel, unfortunately, also has collaborators who believe in his bad news gospel. You know, Satan has a bad news gospel, and we've talked about the false gospel repeatedly. Those are Christians who deny the gospel. There are Christians who deny the true gospel, believe it or not. As the true gospel propagates light, so its denial actually propagates darkness. The darkness gospel looks good in that it is full of good advice, detailed instructions on what to do. The problem is that we don't know how to do what is right. What we need to know is what Christ has done and is doing. Only that knowledge will make it possible for us to be transformed. But people who think they believe Christ's gospel can be obsessed with a very subtle, camouflaged legalism. It's the idea that we must do this, we must do that, we must work more, we must be more faithful, we must get the victory, we must study more, we must pray more, we must witness more ad infinitum. And always the idea is that we have to work at this or that. That a debt hangs over us, an obligation that crushes us. The root poison, however, of self-concern still remains in spite of all of this that we do. And even a Newsweek writer said this about our motivations in a Newsweek magazine 
Ross London. He said, if one chooses good only to gain heaven and avoid hell, one simply acts out of self-interest. Self. And that is legalism. That's the old covenant. It's not motivated by agape. But a distorted... Many, many join the Jews of Christ's day in asking... Well, look at this in John chapter 6 and verse 28. John 6, 28. There are many whose religion is the religion of the Jews, is the religion today of many Christians, because they ask the same thing. The Jews said, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And you know something? They don't listen to the answer, the divine answer that Jesus gave Maybe Jesus gave it with a sigh. He said, this is the work of God that ye believe. That you believe. There's this latent fear of the power of such true faith. Maybe we, if we teach and talk too much about faith, maybe, maybe we'll tell the people or leave them with the impression that they don't need to do good works that they don't need to do anything. And it has been assumed for centuries that the only motivation that's going to be effective is if you condemn people with the fear of hell, if they don't do everything just right. But a distorted gospel that is based on fear can only produce frustration and discouragement and spiritual powerlessness and a worldwide, widespread Lukewarmness in almost every religion is testifying to the prevailing distortion of self-motivation in religions. The problem is that faith is not understood as a heart appreciation of the heavenly love of God. And it is that heavenly love that casts out all fear. We love him because he first loved us. There is a better motivation to answer. The pure, true gospel reveals a faith motivated by love, which works. Faith works, according to Galatians chapter 5. And that's why it's the power of God to salvation. It produces heart acceptance and obedience to all of the truth. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. The inspired apostle said he was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's presenting the agape love of God to sinners. That moves them. He says, my speech and my preaching, verse 24, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's not any human wisdom that awes people in the end to motivate them. That can only motivate through selfishness. It is only the demonstration of the cross that can move people. In these last days, the Lord has promised that again, such a message is going to be proclaimed worldwide, a message that will transcend fear and truly will cast it out. And you find that in the three angels' message. And there is a a final fourth angel talked, spoken of in Revelation 18.1, that final display of truth of the cross where another angel comes down from heaven having great authority 
and the earth is illuminated with his glory, and that is the love of God and the cross of Christ, which demand the imminent fulfillment of this prophecy, that God, when we pray to God, God, why don't you do something for all? What are you doing in the face of all of this suffering? If you're praying that kind of prayer like I am, he says to me, Paul, why don't you do something? And he's saying to me specifically, why don't you uphold the cross of Christ to yourself and to people and let that be the motivator to change hearts, to enlist new combatants in this great controversy so that it can be finished. So the good news reveals three glorious truths. A God who's a heavenly father, a savior who remains for all eternity, a member of our human family, the human face of God, one who is with us, and a Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ, who is sent to abide and to stay with us, with every human soul who welcomes his presence, a great personage like the president of our nation might seem ever so close to us through the television screen, but he remains a finite human being who actually can be close to only a handful of people within his inner circle. But Christ is closer to us individually than any human being can be because he comes to us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So how can anybody be depressed? How can anybody be depressed if he or she will believe such good news? Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.